0: Shalom Aleichem! Welcome to the Shmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. Today, we're excited to share with you something a little bit different a conversation recorded live at the Yiddish Book Center's Community Open House on Sunday, October 20th, 2019. Here, Mindel Cohen, Director of Translation and Collections Initiatives, and Lisa Newman, Director of Communications and host of the Shmooze, discuss all things Yiddish translation. We hope you enjoy. I'm Mindel Cohen, or Madelaine Cohen. I'm the Director of Translation and Collections Initiatives. Um, Just started my second year here at the Center, so I just finished my first year in the position. Um, I am from the area, I grew up in Greenfield, and I went to Hampshire College uh, as an undergrad and actually got my start learning Yiddish here at the Yiddish Book Center in the summer program for college students, the Steiner Summer program. Um, and then I went to grad school uh, in California at UC Berkeley in comparative literature where I was studying Yiddish literature. I eventually made my way back to Massachusetts. I taught Yiddish at Harvard uh, the year before coming here and was very excited when things came full circle and I was able to come um, work on the translation initiatives here at the center.
1: And we were very excited too. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm Lisa Newman. I'm the director of communications at the Yiddish Book Center, which um, entails a lot of things related to communicating. Um, one of those is the publishing initiative. So I work very closely with Mindel um, on the launch of this to bring things to publications. My background was in publishing prior to coming here. Um, so it's uh, very exciting times um, and work that we're completely engaged with and are eager to share with you today. Um, So, Mindal mentioned that she's been here just over a year, um, and in the last past year, I think it's safe to say we've covered a lot of territory, (laughs) and we've gotten a lot of ink onto paper. Um, It's been a really busy year, um, and we're going to share a lot about that with you now. One of the things I thought I would do, um, because I have the Benefit of having been here for eight and a half years is to sort of take you back a little bit and fairly quickly as to how we got here today. Um, In 2012, we decided to convene a summit to talk about translation. And the idea was to get a lot of people who were involved with Yiddish translation together here to sort of hash out what should be done. We knew that we were losing a generation of native Yiddish speakers. We knew that we wanted to get this work out to a a larger readership, um, and we sent out a big e-blast. We thought, oh, maybe 25 people will want to come to this. It seems kind of odd that you'd get more than 25. When we had over 100 registrations, we had to close it out because we didn't have any more space. (laughs) So safe to say there was a lot of energy, there was a lot of enthusiasm, and over three days there were just amazing conversations about, what everybody imagined we needed to do in order to advance translation. So here we are now, this many years later, um, Mendel is um, sort of at the helm of this, and we'll tell you now a little bit about the resulting summit, you know, what, we, what we found out from everybody from the summit, and then basically that's what launched our translation initiative. And in the first year after the initiative, we offered a translation prize that um, paid uh, translators for their work doing a translation which was brought to publication, and then we launched the Translation Fellowship. So will you talk a little bit about the yeah. Translation Fellowship?
0: So the, the Translation Fellowship is now in its seventh year, so it, it began in uh, 2013, and what it is is a year-long program to support people who are translating usually their first book-length project that they're trying to translate from, from Yiddish into English and bring to readership. Some people are more experienced who do the program, but the goal was really to um, give a a workshopping experience a kind of cohort collaborative training experience to a new generation of yiddish translators and actually the fellowship is what helped um, reconnect me to the yiddish book center after i had been here as an undergraduate i participated in the in the translation fellowship in 2015 so the, the structure of the program is translators apply with a book that they want to translate. So they, people who are researchers and readers who love Yiddish literature find works that they really think will resonate with English-speaking readers. They propose that project to us. Um, we give them a small stipend to help support the work, and we bring them here a group of 10 every year um, for three weekend workshops. So they get to come and spend six days total bringing in drafts of their work and, and reading them together and giving feedback with these 10 other people who are learning how to do this, really an art form that is literary translation. Um, you, ha- you have to be as much a writer in English yourself in order to be a good literary translator as much as you need to be a good understander of the Yiddish original um, we also bring in professional literary translators to facilitate those workshops. And that's one of the really interesting experiences is many of those workshop leaders are not Yiddish speakers. They might know nothing about Yiddish. What they know is literary translation. So they translate from Spanish or French or German or Czech uh, or Chinese. We had a recent translator who's a, a Chinese translator. Um, So even without understanding the original Yiddish, they understand all of those challenges of bringing a work of literature from one culture and one language into another culture and another language. Um, So at this point in seven years, uh, 60 people exactly have participated in this fellowship, and that's been one of the wonderful results is um, realizing how big... The kind of cohort of Yiddish translators is. There were some fears, I think, in the fourth <laughs> year or so, or every year maybe, of like, are there still translators who haven't done this program yet? Will people apply again? Or have, maybe we've reached it. You know, everybody who would be interested in doing this project has done it. Uh, and that hasn't been the case. And uh, to the contrary, Last year we had more applications than in any other year. Over 40 people applied last year for one of these 10 positions. Um, And we can see in that already some of the success that the fact that this program exists uh, gives encouragement to more people to consider taking on translating a project. If the program weren't there, folks might not think that they could do it on their own. But with that kind of support and framework, more people are kind of taking on the challenge of translating.
1: And they, the, the translators get a stipend for this. And also the goal of this is to bring a, a new work yeah. to publication. Um, and it's been really exciting to see what they're unearthing. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about some of these? I mean, I, the other thing is that the idea that you could be a have a profession as a Yiddish translator is kind of fun yes yes (laughs) one might not have thought that that might be the case um but it seems to be playing out
0: yeah no there's a real there's a real range in the kinds of people the backgrounds of people the ages where they live who come to the fellowship and that's one of the strengths you can see younger people who've learned Yiddish in university like myself mixing with people who know Yiddish as a native language and kind of everywhere in between people who are um professors of Yiddish literature and graduate students of Yiddish literature, but also one fellow is a a working neuroscientist came and did this program, or um, the Dean of Students at Columbia University came to do the program. Journalists do it, working poets do it. So all of those different backgrounds add to what they learn from one another when they're sharing their works. They're the different ways that they know Yiddish, they're different literary backgrounds or backgrounds as readers. Um, adds a lot of strength. Some people really are becoming full-time professional literary translators. They're they really see this as their career. And I that's probably one of the most exciting things to see that that shows a real change, right? That um there is just starting to be enough interest from enough different publishers and enough readers that a person can make a can make a living almost. Um, as a Yiddish translator, if one lives a frugal lifestyle, I think, um, or
1: or if we do our job really well,
0: right, yes, right. And I, <laughs> that's something that we've really learned, right? Is um, this is a this is a slow kind of tidal change, right? So the the fellowship, the first year was two thousand thirteen. Some of the projects that were people began translating in two thousand thirteen and two thousand fourteen are just coming out now. Um, because it often takes longer than that year to translate a novel and to translate it well. And then there's the time frame of book publishing as an industry, which doesn't always move so quickly. So It's got a long of, gestation. Yeah, some of these works um, that I can tell you about more, they're years in the, proce- in the process. Um, so I think we're really just starting to see kind of the full fruits of the fellowship after these seven years and the fact that So many new translators are coming to it. New publishers are coming to it. We're discovering new works and new authors that can resonate with audiences today. Um, Yeah.
1: And let's talk a little bit about the literature, um, which for a non Yiddish speaker is a really exciting part of my job because I finally get to read this work. Um, uh, So we had a workshop Last summer, um, and Ellen Cassidy, who worked with us, who, she was the winner of that first year of the Translation um, Prize, and she published She's recently Yen Tamash and she also um, translated and published uh, also *Oedipus in Brooklyn*. And she addressed the translators, and she said, "And I think this—I don't know if she poached this from somewhere else, but you know, Yiddish is a major literature in a minor language." And I think that that was really resonated with me. Because Yiddish work had a global readership because it people spoke Yiddish all around the world right. and what 's really exciting is to see the different fellows gravitating towards different things mm-hmm. um, memoirs, journalism, travel logs yeah. um, plays and literary criticism. Talk a little bit about that and what's surprising about some of these finds. Yeah.
0: I mean, one of the things that's a real pleasure is um, I would say at least half of the projects that get proposed are works that I've never heard of and sometimes often by authors that I've never heard of. After spending you know, eight years in graduate school where that was all I was doing was trying to read Yiddish literature and learn about it, there are so many authors who might have been very well read and really loved up into the 1930s or 40s that because they hadn't been translated into English and for whatever reason didn't make it onto college reading lists, um, we don't know about so well. So the number of, of things that people really are unearthing and kind of bringing back to attention is really inspiring. And Ellen Cassidy's work is a great example she has translated two women writers, um, this one, Yen Tamash, who uh, wrote up until the early 2000s. She she really started writing in Yiddish in the 1970s in Israel and then into the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Um, So she's a writer who who never really got to have her first audience either because the reading audience for Yiddish literature in Israel existed, but it was small. So, so many people are finding her stories for the first time through these English translations, Uh, and and I think that's the case with a lot of the work. So, to give you, it's hard to give a sense of how varied these things are, but in this current year, we have somebody translating um, an autobiographical novel about life in the Lodz ghetto, Written all all written from notes and memoirs that the author made while he was in the ghetto and then turned into a novel afterwards. Uh, we have a person translating Yiddish stories about life in the East End in London in the 1930s and 40s. Um, we have plays being translated. Let's see what else. Um, to comparing to kind of how new that you know this work from 2007. We had a fellow last year who was translating the Renna, which people might know as kind of the first maybe Yiddish bestseller uh, written in the 15th or 16th century that had kind of stayed in in publication ever since. And we had a fellow kind of take on, what does it mean to translate this this work? Um, And he's doing something very creative with it. So... We have people translating memoir and personal essay. Uh, it's such a range of things, and it reflects the range of of yiddish
1: literature um, yeah and it's interesting that it also it enlightens and gives us a window into Jewish. Culture. Right. Um, uh, and a lot of the work is post war. I mean I'm looking at the Seeds in the Dender Mendelman. Yeah. This was written after the war and he goes, as you say, in the, the blurb, backwards in time. And we really get an we get to experience what the arc of his life was like.
0: Yeah. No, that that has pleasantly surprised me a lot as well in the the applications to the translation fellowship and seeing what's being published is people are really reading post-war Yiddish literature, things written in the 50s and 60s up until today, um, as much as they're they're interested in translating the classics of Yiddish literature from the turn of the century or the 20s and 30s, uh, which reflects one of the challenges for translation. That is, it's, it's already challenging to make English reading audiences interested in reading a book translated from a language they don't know, from a culture they don't know anything about, and if it's also from a hundred years ago, this kind of this extra, feels like this extra distance between the literature and the reader. I think that's one of the reasons that um, for translation, especially people are turning to this more recent work because it is, it's closer, it's modern, it deals with politics that feel very familiar and cultural situations that feel very familiar. Um, and it shows us how modern Yiddish literature is as well.
1: Which is always surprising. Yeah. Um, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about t- translation. It's not of uh, Yiddish literature in particular. It's not a new phenomenon. Right. Um, and some of the challenges associated with it for our translation fellows. I mean, works were translated into a number of languages when they were originally published. Um, and I would cite writers like Singer. Um, he had a cohort of translators who were bringing his work out. Uh, um, Hava Rosenfarb's daughter, uh, Goldie Morgenthaler, during Hava's lifetime, was her translator, brought that work out, um, Sholem Ash, and I'm sure that there are a lot more that you could elaborate on, but basically that that allowed for a relationship between the living writer and the translator. Yeah. That's not true for our translation fellows, so how much in terms of context, language, all of these nuances, how do they struggle with that?
0: Yeah, but, so a couple of years ago when I, when I was doing the translation fellowship, I went to this conference of literary translators, and I saw one panel session called Translating the Dead, <laughs> and it was this kind of exotic topic there, and it was this moment when I realized my experience was totally the minority compared to most working literary translators, many of whom work with the author they're translating. They're translating brand new literature, and they, if they come across a sentence or a word or a line of a poem that they don't understand, they can call the author up and ask them. And that shocked me so much because my whole experience in translating Yiddish was the opposite, that anybody who can speak with their author, and there are some people, but that's the minority for Yiddish, that um, for so many of us, even somebody like Yen Tamash, who was writing into the early 2000s, has passed away before her translator started working on her project. Um, So it's one of the reasons I think that having, building this community of Yiddish translators is so important, both that, so that we can talk with other translators about these questions, we can compare our reading and our understanding with another translator's reading and understanding, and think through the solutions. So a lot of the the translation workshops are, well, does he mean um, or does he mean na, or does he mean uh, like all of those have such different resonances, these small kind of choices. So you need somebody who's engaged both with the original and with English to help you think these things through. Um, and even the more so that, that so many of the translators aren't native speakers, we're students. That means there's always things that we're learning as we're translating. There is a chance for misunderstanding. Um, so getting to do that work together is much more productive, it's much more enjoyable, um, and we see that there really is this great kind of community feeling among the translators who do the project. So we have a Facebook group for for all of the alumni who've gone through, and people are constantly posting these kind of funny questions, like, does this word mean chicken soup, or does it mean chicken stew, and what are the implications? Or... Ellen has a great story about a word she couldn't figure out for the life of her and finally realized it was a very specific kind of shoe, but she had to find a native Ukrainian speaker to help her figure out what the word was. So you really need that that community um, to approach the work responsibly, which we see that the translators care so much about, right? It, it would be easy to kind of fudge something, um, but they care so much not to do that, and they really work with one another and, with different resources uh, to find solutions to those problems, and yeah.
1: Um, and it's exciting to see, that, again, the way that they are, they're building. You know, it, it grows exponentially every year so that there's a larger community yeah. to debate some of these words, which can be good. And it can be bad. There's one anecdote, if I may, that I love to share, which is we had our second workshop last summer, um, and so I had everybody out to the house, or a, a handful of translators, out to the house, and before dinner, I was in the kitchen cooking, and I looked out the window, and they were all swimming, and. Well, they weren't swimming, they were all standing in a circle, and it was very animated, I couldn't hear them, and I thought, wow, and it was really an intense conversation, and I thought they were talking about something incredibly heady, yeah. only to find out when I asked them that they were all debating who had the perfect definition for the word, and I thought, you know, <laughs> it's the only time in Western Mass in the rural reaches when right. translators are going to be doing that, And and it It is helping. I mean, it it allows them to have this support system. Yeah. Um, I I think people are surprised, or maybe I'm speaking personally, that writers chose to write in Yiddish. Um, I think we may forget that this was a language. It was a a language that culture played out in. Um, And that, again, it reached a, a global readership. There were native speakers can you speak a little bit about those choices or some of the writers?
0: Right, yeah, and it's, it can be especially surprising if you know that almost every Yiddish speaker was bilingual or multilingual, right? Um, this is true for many communities and languages, but especially for Yiddish. There's almost no such thing as a monolingual Yiddish speaker. You had to know the coexisting language that people spoke around you. You often learned some degree of Hebrew, and if you are educated in any way, it's very easy that most of these writers probably could function in four languages or, or more. So there does, that makes it even more the case that writing in Yiddish is a choice, right? That um, Russian might have been available or German might have been available or Hebrew, and many people did write in Hebrew as well as Yiddish, and they moved back and forth. So it's interesting to see all of the trajectories of writers that the people who ended up deciding Yiddish was the best medium um, to share their thoughts and ideas with the world. Uh, and I think that happens for a lot of reasons, and it's one of the exciting things about the language that for, some, for many people, it was about building a, a different kind of Jewish identity um, and choosing a Jewish identity in the face of assimilation into different cultures um, it could be a politically-aligned decision. It could be a religiously-aligned decision. Um, so, it, But it often has something to do with that kind of choosing some kind of Jewish identity, choosing some kind of community, and actively helping to build that community, right? There's never a kind of easy, given situation in which one can live one's entire life in Yiddish or make a living as a writer or something. Al- almost all of these people are participating in some way in establishing the newspapers so that then they have a newspaper to write in, or establishing a journal so they have something to write in, work, building a publishing house, teaching in schools. Um, They had to do all of that work to create the cultural situation for Yiddish, and they also always had to make the argument that Yiddish was a real language and was capable of carrying a full culture. So... um, We don't get to talk about it in the translation program so much, but one of the interesting things, of course, is there's a lot of literature translated into Yiddish, as much as we're talking about translating Yiddish into English, that that was seen as an important part of the project of building Yiddish as a culture, a Jewish culture. So if you can perform King Lear in Yiddish, it means that Yiddish is as good a language as English. If you can read Kant in Yiddish, it means that Yiddish is as capable of philosophy as German is. Um, So that, those kind of debates and conversations about establishing the status of Yiddish, like on the world stage, was something that played out both in terms of um, even writers like Vesheva Singer, who you mentioned, he translated world literature into Yiddish, probably to make money, but (laughs) also to show that Yiddish can do it and it was, I'm sure, a way for him to develop his craft as a writer the same way that our translators realize, oh, you actually have to know something about putting together a good English sentence in order to translate Yiddish literature. Um, So I love seeing those debates uh, of Yiddish writers, maybe especially in the 30s and 40s where they're talking about the importance of translating world literature into Yiddish, and they're also talking about how important it is or not to have Yiddish translated into English. So um, as much as we're thinking about that now, we can read essays by writers like Yankov uh, Glatstein, Jacob Glatstein, uh, debating, does it matter to have Yiddish translated into English? Does that prove that Yiddish is a world culture or not? And actually, Glatstein Glot- said, I don't really care if they translate me into, into English. My writing in Yiddish is world literature. That was the claim that he wanted to make. Um, people took all positions in that, and you see that today, too, of you know people who will put the emphasis on teaching Yiddish language, that we need to train more people to read Yiddish in the original, which I agree with. I don't see it as um, counterposed no. to making the literature available in translation. I think you can also attract people that way but it's one of these debates you realize that um have been happening for as long as Yiddish has been a language so same as the debate about is Yiddish dead turns out that is a debate that people have been having for 200 years at least it's nothing new and I think it's the same with the role of translation and and what does that have to do with Yiddish's place as a literature and as a culture on the world
1: stage so if we fast forward or we flip this conversation um, and we talk about now, yeah. um, last last March we were very lucky. Um, you came with your phone in hand into my office to show me that we oh. had received news <laughs> that we were shortlisted mm-hmm. at the London Book Fair for our translation initiative, um, which is exciting on a, on a lot of different levels, yeah. but to see Yiddish become part of the larger growing acceptance of... Translation, as part of the publishing landscape, you know, work in translation. We were told at at the London Book Fair, um, in terms of the analytics, as that it were, um, it now represents about uh, translation in general represents about four percent of all work that's published um, each year, which doesn't sound like much, but it's made traction from one percent over the last three years. So people are finally realizing and putting it. Into this landscape and accepting it, the fact that we're taking a literature that it goes back a hundred maybe a hundred and fifty years um, and bringing it into that conversation is a good thing yes yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think I think we've really realized this together that both the project of training a new generation of Yiddish translators and bringing y- translated Yiddish literature kind of onto mainstream stages is happening at the same time that that's happening for literary translation in general, at least in the English reading world, that um, there seems to be this very small, slow growing attention to the quality of literary translation. Um, One example, right, is that the National Book Awards offer an award for translated literature for the first time last year. So it's one of the reasons we we've, we've re- hope that this project of tr- translating more Yiddish literature and helping to publish more of it is happening at the right time, that there's that extra attention and focus on, on literary translation in general.
1: So coming back to the original part of this conversation too, which was we convened a summit and all of these things have happened. We announced White Go Press, which is the Yiddish Book Center's imprint. We have brought work in translation to publication over the past many years, but we hope to do it in a much more ambitious and much more intentional way going forward to you know, based on our abilities. So talk a little bit about the different ways that we are getting this work out there, if you would.
0: Right. So I'll just start since you mentioned the, the kind of newest project is um, publishing books here at the Yiddish Book Center. So you'll see many copies of this in the shop if you're interested. Seeds in the Desert came out this spring, and in just a couple weeks, our second work, Warsaw Stories, will be out. Um, And that's part of this kind of landscape. I have other books here. These are other translation fellowship projects that have been published by other presses, so we want White Goat Press to be one new venue added into this kind of growing space for Yiddish and translation from a range of publishers. Um, But the other things that the center has been doing for longer that we see as giving us a really kind of like multi-dimensional way to help readers find the work. Uh, Every month, we publish a short translation on the website. And they're short. They're very fun. There's poetry. There's short stories. There's essays. Um, They have a great range of things. They're often excerpts from people's fellowship projects, so it gives you a sense of the kind of work coming out there. Um, So, for instance, last month... uh, we published part of a fellowship project that was uh, a scene from a play written in 1880 by Maria Lerner. And as far as we know, that play was the first Yiddish play by a woman that was actually produced on the stage. It was produced in 1881 in Odessa, just a year or two before there was a kind of restrictions placed on, on Yiddish production in the Russian Empire. Um, And we have short stories by a writer named Alexander Spiegelblatt who was writing into, uh, I think the last story was 2007. So you have a range from 1881 to 2007 Yiddish literature there on the website. Uh, We also do, probably my favorite project that I've gotten to work on so far or that I've gotten to see all the way through is um, the Pock and Traeger digital translation issue. So once a year... There's an online-only issue of Pock and Trigger that's just an anthology of newly translated Yiddish work.
1: But it's also available as an ebook. Sorry, my role break. as a marketer has yes. to come in. There.
0: <laughs> and I have a print copy just because. Um, <laughs> that so that's, a, really lov- that's a, a place where we kind of see that community of translators that we've been working with. We put out a call each year. For the last three years, um, we've chosen a theme to organize the issue around. So we kind of send out this theme... And then we see all of those 60 translators plus a kind of wider range of people who are aware that the center publishes sending in material. So the first year that they did a theme, it was um, writing by women. The second year, it was transportation, literature that was about different modes of moving around. So it was called the movable shtetl. Um, Last year, the the issue that I got to work on was... um, on the theme of correspondence, of letter-writing. So we called it "Avrum Avenu Receives a Letter and Other Yiddish Correspondence. Um, And that title is from an Itzikmonger poem where he imagines Abraham, our father, sending a fax, actually, (laughs) in the the way that the translator renders it. Um, Next year, we have a call-out right now for the next theme, which will be Coming to America. So we're looking for different writing that addresses the immigrant experience. Um, and, of cu- and we publish translations still in every print issue of Pock and Trigger as well. And we're getting to feature some excerpts from these books in those translations. So you can get a little taste of Seeds in the Desert and the last issue
1: and of Warsaw Stories. And we're also trying to work collaboratively with... We're helping with some subvention with academic presses right. and um, and also trying to, in the spirit of Yiddish literature, which was serialized in most parts or most instances before it came out in full editions we're working with other um, outlets to try to share this work out um, as is usually the case with our work so I wondered um, I think we still have a few minutes um, if you would like to share a few of your yeah favorites? I would say that the thing that's fun about the anthology is it's a little bit of a guilty pleasure, we should confess, because picking the topic is means that you get to <laughs> solicit work that you want to actually read, yeah, yeah, a topic that you're curious about.
0: Yeah, so I'll tell you a couple favorites um, from this last issue that was about the theme of correspondence and letter writing, and the first one is courtesy of our bibliographer sitting in the back row. So as we were talking about this issue and sharing some of the ideas that were coming in, uh, David came in one day with this portfolio of postcards um, that had been sent to the Osh family. And so I had this, must have been one of my best days of work, where I got to just sit and like flip through these amazing, just to see the images of the postcards. They came from absolutely everywhere in the world, from all kinds of people. So, he was kind enough to, to let us choose one that was sent um, to Osh from the Chagall family, really. So, uh, and it's sent to the Osh family when they're living in Bellevue, in Paris, outside Paris? Outside Paris. And it's very short postcard, so this is our brief translation. I don't have the whole Yiddish here, but I could try to read it if you'd like. Dear ones, it's raining... Pouring, bucketing—what kind of world is this? Nevertheless, life is good. Yours, Chagall. <laughs> this is his entire postcard. Um, then, so the the collection has uh, a range of personal correspondence, like that postcard between writers. It has stories in which a letter plays the kind of crucial plot device. So um, one is the beginning of a novel in which a young woman journalist receives a letter offering her a job to become an editor of a brand new newspaper that's launching. So she has to decide, is she going to leave New York to go work for this provincial newspaper, which um, Jessica Kirzane, the translator, and I finally realized the provincial city where the newspaper is coming out is Boston. (laughs) Um, there's poetry like this. It's Gmonger a, it's a poem that are that are written as letters or in which letters play a role. So, but I think the um, the most interesting for me are some of the personal correspondence between writers. So, one one of the selections is um, exchange of letters between the writers Bluma Lempel and Chava Rosenfarb. And the translators, Ellen Cassidy and Yermiah Taub, wrote about this actually in a recent Pock and Trigger as well. And then they went back and kind of pulled out a bigger selection of the letters that we could publish in this. And one of the nicest things about this, so these are two women writers who didn't know each other in person, but Chava Rosenfarb, who was probably the better known writer at the time, she just gets the address of Bluma Lempel because she's read a story of hers in a journal and she likes it. She asks the editor for the address and she just writes her and they strike up this years-long friendship that mostly only takes place in letters. They, we don't, they may be met once or twice, but they really built this kind of literary but very friendly and very supportive um, relationship through letters. So the way it opens, I think, is just really touching. So Hava Rosenfarb writes... I've read some of your writing and felt so drawn to it that I asked the editors about you. Who are you? I feel very close to your way of writing, your style. She writes a bit more, and then her postscript, which I love is, Forgive my scribble-scrabble, I stopped smoking a week ago, and since then I've been all thumbs, which she adds to somebody she's never met. And uh, Bluma Lempel writes back, Dear Hava Rosenfarb, I almost wrote beloved Chava Rosenfarb instead of dear, and that would have been the truth. I've read and reread your letter. I've read your story in the footsteps of I and you, and I love every word from your pen, or should I say, from your soul. So you can just imagine this kind of newer writer, like how over the moon she must have been to get this letter from a writer that she admired. And it, it's really a treat to get to see some of that back and forth, especially between these two women, who they, they really do offer support to one another of their careers. Um, and these are quite recent. These are from the 1980s. So this is also a, a more recent story. So I'll, I'll just mention one, one other one um, where the, the correspondence is very interesting and the story is very interesting. So the letters are from the novelist and poet Chaim Grade. Um, to his friend, uh, Abraham Borenstein. Uh, and they have, a very, they have a very funny relationship. Basically, Borenstein seems to have worked out different ways to help support Grada financially. So he would invite him to give lectures and things, but it was all a kind of obvious plan that they had worked out to, just to help support Grada's writing and in exchange, Grada had to write him nice letters, like real, genuine, detailed, thick letters was the reward that Borenstein got for supporting him in this way. And so the, the letters are translated by a woman named Rose Waldman, who's done the fellowship actually twice. And she's working on a translation of um, an unpublished novel by Grada. And it was thick, so she was like, 350 pages into this translation and feeling like the novel clearly wasn't over and there was only 50 pages of manuscript left, so she couldn't figure out, like, Grad is a master novelist. How could he have so many loose ends so close to the end of the novel? In the meantime, or around that same time, a grad student from Israel gets in touch saying, I'm reading this correspondence, all these letters that Grada has written to Borenstein, because they're um, at Hebrew University, I think, and he meant he's writing about the novel that I know you're translating. Would you like to take a look at the letter? She says, yes, please. By reading those letters, she realizes it's a two-volume novel, <laughs> so she has to go back into the archives, and she, does, she has found the second volume, the manuscript, existed. She, I think it means that the publication date for that translation has been delayed a little bit, um, but just like, and then she just was very interested in the correspondence, and so she picked out a series of letters that show us some of that relationship between Grada and Borenstein, um, and she picked some letters that get at the relationship between Grada and his wife, which is um, Somewhat famous or infamous in Yiddish literary circles, his his wife was very protective of his literary legacy. After his passing, she was much criticized by different people, called not very nice things. So Rose Waldman was really interested to see how does he write about her and try to understand her relationship from the letters.
1: So to wrap this up, I think, if I may, um, we have 60 people who are out there hungry to get to this work. So it's all really exciting, and the outcome of all this is yet to be seen, but um, there's a lot out there. So thank you all. You've
0: been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To subscribe to this and other podcasts, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. I'm Sarah Blakefeld. Be well, be healthy, and
1: tune in again soon.